0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode from News From The Front. In this episode, we're going to jump forward in time to the Falklands conflict, which I'm still surprised is actually 40 years ago now. Um, It was one of the first conflicts in which I was fully aware and following the news. So, uh, uh, So it's always been an area that's interested me. And in this episode, I'm going to dig into a slight sideshow of the overall Falklands conflict the loss and recapture of the South Georgia island. As always, if you're able to support the podcast in any way, please do. Uh, There are multiple ways which are in the show notes. One simple way you can do that is by going across to Substack, typing in news from the front and subscribing, and that way you get the transcripts to these podcasts and any other related articles and material I put out there. Okay, let's get on with the show. the loss and recapture of South Georgia. South Georgia is a small island some 800 miles away from the Falklands archipelago. Whilst the Falklands supports sheep farming and has a climate a bit like the Orkneys or the Hebrides Islands in Scotland, South Georgia is a different place altogether, having a brutal Antarctic climate. Approximately 103 miles long, 22 miles wide at its widest point, South Georgia is usually home to penguins, reindeer, seabirds and a small contingent of British Antarctic survey scientists. Captain James Cook, the famous explorer, landed on the island in 1775 and claimed them for Britain, naming them after King George III, and South Georgia was the setting for the first action taken against British territories in the South Atlantic in 1982, as the Argentinians incrementally asserted themselves in the area. In February 1982, a Panamanian yacht arrived, carrying amongst its contingent an Argentinian banker. The banker was probably a spy sent to reconnoiter ahead of an invasion. After all, the banking opportunities are somewhat limited in such a remote outpost. As well as this activity, the British Antarctic Survey scientists on the island had also noticed an increase in overflights by Argentinian C-130 Hercules aircraft at the time. On the 19th of March 1982, a British Antarctic Survey scientist undertaking a wildlife survey spotted a boat illegally landing people and supplies at a small place called Leith. They were also hoisting an Argentinian flag. The personnel landed were nominally scrap metal merchants sent to demolish and salvage the metal from the rusting whaling station in the bay. However, it seems likely that some of the contingent may have been from the Argentine military. This was not the first unauthorised landing on the island. Back in December 1981, The scrap metal merchants had landed to survey the whaling station, ostensibly as a part of commercial activities, but a pattern was emerging. Whilst South Georgia is technically an entirely separate territory to the Falkland Islands, it was natural for the scientists to refer the matter to the Falkland Islands government, who were the nearest administrative function. The response from Government House in the Falklands was clear all visitors to South Georgia must put into Gritviken, which is the capital for want of any better word, for permission to land and to have their passports properly stamped in line with international law. The scientists on South Georgia duly communicated these conditions to the Argentinians. The Argentinians refused to cooperate with these instructions, but they did lower their flag. As the scrap metal men went about their business a more serious landing took place on 25th of March 1982 when a larger Argentinian ship arrived and disembarked a contingent of heavily armed marines under Captain Alfredo Astiz who immediately laid mines and prepared to defend the position that his men now held. The invasion was reported to the governor in the Falklands and on to Whitehall in London almost immediately. However, the government kept the nature of the invasion a secret. The media and the House of Commons were led to believe that the only landings had been by commercial scrap merchants rather than the military. As part of the government response, the House of Commons was told that HMS Endurance, an ice patrol ship and the only naval ship in the area, had been sent on the 20th of March with a contingent of Royal Marines on board with orders to evict the Argentinians armed with two 20mm cannon and two WASP helicopters that could carry rockets, the Endurance was capable of causing the Argentinians some serious problems. However, orders from London, confident that their diplomatic efforts would triumph, were to avoid confrontation and await further developments once at Gretveken. On arrival, the Endurance landed her small detachment of Royal Marines, and then mounted maritime patrols that amounted little more than sailing up and down the island, while the government in London offered concessions confirming that the Argentinians could stay on South Georgia if they would just conform to the normal administrative niceties and get their passports stamped. However, on the 27th of March, news of an increased Argentinian naval mobilisation, in readiness for operations in the South Atlantic, began to filter through to London. Whilst the initial deployment of two destroyers, a submarine and two corvettes, was worrying enough, concerns reached new levels when on the 29th, the Argentinian flagship, the aircraft carrier Vienticinco de Mayo, also put to sea. The invasion of the Falkland Islands was now imminent. Synchronised with the planned occupation of the Falkland Islands, the Argentinians also declared the occupation of South Georgia and began their landings having completed a formal flag-raising ceremony at Leith, the Argentinian marines then decided that the time had come to take on the scientists at Gripvecken, little suspecting that a contingent of well-armed but heavily outnumbered royal marines were digging in on King Edward Point along the route that the Argentinians would have to take. It's a sort of a peninsula that juts out over the front of the harbour. Aware that they were outnumbered, Nevertheless, they prepared their positions, hoping to inflict a bloody nose on the invaders. At 10.30am, the Argentinians broadcast a message stating that the Malvinas, that's the Spanish name for the Falkland Islands, had been surrendered, and demanded that the British on South Georgia also surrender. The British response was to engage in delaying tactics, considering that there were very few other options available, requesting two hours to think it through. Their response to the Argentinian invaders was broadcast on their high-frequency radio so that the whole of the South Atlantic and the Endurance would hear it. As the Argentinians had expressly forbidden the use of long-range radios, this angered them, and they responded that the British had five minutes before they would land. True to their word, Five minutes later, two Alouette helicopters flew over and began to disembark troops near Gripverken. A Puma helicopter moved in and tried to disembark troops a little too close to the Marines' position and attracted plenty of small-arms fire from from the Marines. Belching smoke from the damage caused, the pilot of the Puma decided that it would be best to be elsewhere and careered off, crash-landing a little way off. The Royal Marines now directed their efforts against the Gurico, a naval corvette that had strayed within range. Hitting it with rockets, aimed sniper fire and over a thousand rounds of ammunition, the Gurico also decided it would be best to retreat out of range to deal with a hole on her waterline and lots of other damage. The British Marines had inflicted damage on the Argentinians that was totally out of proportion to the size of their force. However, there was only one way that such an uneven contest could end, and surrounded and under heavy 100mm cannon fire from the Gurico, the marines were forced to surrender. The small force of 21 Royal Marines had resisted for an hour and had suffered one man wounded. Their efforts had killed probably four Argentinians, downed a helicopter and had made a mess of the Gurico. They had achieved their aim of giving the invaders a bloody nose but now faced the uncertainties of capture. Happily for them, the Argentinians treated the British marines with respect and after medical treatment for the wounded man and a short spell of travel to the mainland and imprisonment, they were sent on to Uruguay before being repatriated to Britain where they were given a hero's welcome. The invasion of South Georgia was now complete but in a final quirk the Argentinian occupiers, perhaps tacitly acknowledging the impracticality of the territory they'd seized, failed to round up all of the British Antarctic Survey scientists who lived and worked on the island. These scientists were able to continue their research work regardless. The loss of South Georgia was small beer compared with the occupation of the Falkland Islands, which occurred shortly afterwards. A few scientists on an ice-bound rock was never going to tug the heartstrings as much as the British citizens, men, women and children of the larger islands nearby. Under pressure, the British government surprised many in Britain and the Argentinians themselves by hurriedly pulling together a large naval task force comprising most of the Royal Navy and crammed some of the best units in the British army and sending it south either to add weight to British diplomatic efforts or to retake the islands, should negotiations fail. The recapture of the Falkland Islands is a bigger topic for another day, but before the main attempts to liberate the Falklanders, the British decided to retake South Georgia. From the distance of 40 years, it seems obvious that the British government decided to retake South Georgia first in order to achieve a public relations coup but there were other reasons too. It is true that the British government needed some good news at a time when key members of the government had resigned over their failure to understand and thwart Argentinian intentions, and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was embarking upon such a politically disastrous military endeavour. A quick, potentially low-risk victory was just what the British government needed to show their resolve send a message to the Argentinians as a part of their diplomatic escalation, and to boost public opinion at home. Militarily it made sense too, that the Admiralty needed to show that their assurances about the overall Falklands operation were justified, and the scope of the South Georgia operations would be small. With the Argentinians clustered around Gretwachen as the only place worth holding, the opposing force was a known quantity in scale and disposition, This meant it should be possible to gauge the size of the force necessary to ensure victory. Finally, due to the geographic position of the island, the Argentinians were relatively isolated and couldn't be reinforced easily, ensuring that intelligence about the enemy forces was unlikely to change. All in all, the operation to retake South Georgia made a kind of political and military sense. It just needed doing. The decision to retake South Georgia ahead of the main effort to recover the Falklands had been taken just a few days after the islands had been occupied. The ships, HMS Antrim, HMS Plymouth and the tanker RFA Tidespring, that's a Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship, were sent to retake South Georgia with a force of around 230 troops from M Company, 42 Commando Royal Marines, the Special Air Service at the SAS, the Special Boat Service, the SBS, and a few artillery observers. Arriving off South Georgia, the small naval task force rendezvoused with the Endurance, which had been avoiding attention by hiding amongst the icebergs off South Georgia. Following their usual approach of setting up observation posts from which to watch the enemy before planning how to handle them, the SAS and SBS planned to go ashore near Leith and Great Valken in three separate landings, the SAS Mountain Troop and SBS on the 21st of April, and another SAS detachment, the Boat Troop, on the 23rd. These operations got off to an inauspicious start. Underestimating the conditions, probably in the face of advice from the leader of the scientific mission on the island who was advising them, the SAS decided on a landing on Fortuna Glacier. Put ashore by helicopter, they rapidly got into difficulty as a blizzard forced them to camp on the glacier ice in rapidly deteriorating conditions. Losing a tent and now in real trouble from the elements, they radioed for help the next day, calling for an immediate evacuation. Chief Petty Officer David Heretier on HMS Antrim recounted how The special troops had suffered a very rough night, with the high winds. They couldn't move because of the crevices on the glacier and needed to be rescued. Three Wessex helicopters were sent to retrieve them, flying to the glacier in appalling conditions. The weather was so bad that during the rescue, two of the helicopters crashed on the glacier ice. Heretier continues. Humphrey, uh, that's the nickname for one of HMS Antrim's helicopters, and the two Wessex Fives disappeared up into the gloom. Then we heard that one had crashed. Humphrey clattered back out of the darkness on his own. I plugged in and asked the pilot where the other aircraft were. They've both crashed in a whiteout. Some of the special troops were in Humphrey, and when they got out, we could see that he'd been grossly overloaded, and there were several more loads of men to bring back. But the weather really closed in. We couldn't take off so we got the aircraft ready to go again and waited. During this pause, the maintenance crew went about lightening the load on the remaining Wessex, removing its anti-submarine warfare sonar apparatus and anything else that wasn't essential to increase its lifting capacity. Eventually there was, and the quote continues, a small break in the weather, so the boss decided to have another go up the glacier, his seventh time that day. We didn't know if they would come back but after a very long time we heard the noise of the rotors and Humphrey again emerged from the darkness and with great gusto landed immediately. No hovering or anything. I was stunned. There were 17 people in the aircraft, sitting on the floor, lying on top of each other, biggish people. It was only through a mixture of skill and luck and a complete disregard for the usual operating capacity of the aircraft that they were able to rescue both the SAS troopers and the helicopter crew members, evacuating them to safety and presumably a nice warm drink. It was a close-run thing on the narrowest of margins. The pilot had relied on the extreme cold over the glacier to provide dense air for his takeoff and had landed without hovering first because the air was thinner over the ship and there was no guarantee he could remain airborne. The other two attempts to establish a presence on the island landing from the sea fared little better. The SAS boat troops suffered engine failure in two of their three landing boats. One drifted out to sea and required a seven-hour and ultimately successful helicopter search to find and retrieve the troopers before they were lost in the South Atlantic. The second powerless boat drifted into the shore and the troopers endured a difficult time in survival conditions before they risked calling for rescue once they were certain the main landings had taken place and they wouldn't compromise operational security. The remaining boat made it into position on Grass Island and were able to set up an observation point overlooking Leith. Finally, the SBS struck out for Cumberland Bay in their fast dinghies. However, they found that their rubber boats were not suited for the conditions in the sea ice tending to get punctured, and they were forced to call for a helicopter rescue before being reinserted later on. The fact that this litany of disaster and near misses had befallen some of the most highly trained and best equipped soldiers in the British Special Forces shows the difficulties that the weather conditions were capable of inflicting. Around the 23rd, news came that an Argentinian submarine was potentially loose in the area. Taking precautions, the task group ships sailed away deploying anti-submarine measures as they went. The endurance was left to continue lurking amongst the ice floes. Her engines were too noisy for modern submarine warfare, and if she sailed with the rest of the task group, was likely to give away the location of all the ships. HMS Broadsword arrived on the 24th, bringing much-needed helicopters to replace the ones that had been lost. On the 25th, radio traffic suggested that the Argentinian submarine, the Santa Fe, had arrived at Grootvacan. This presented a considerable target of opportunity that had the potential to threaten the main task force. Argentina only had four submarines in total, so this represented a good opportunity. So, determined to catch the submarine while she was both in a known position and on the surface, the task group sailed in with helicopters deployed for anti submarine warfare. The Santa Fe had been landing reinforcements on the island, increasing the Argentinians' overall strength to somewhere over 100 people, and was leaving South Georgia when the anti submarine warfare helicopters located her. David Heretier described the scene as the Santa Fe was attacked with depth charges and rockets. They found it on the surface and made two passes dropping the first depth charge right beside the submarine, with the second bouncing off the casing and rolling down the side, both exploding. This was the first time that a helicopter had attacked the submarine, even though we'd been practicing it for years. They forced the submarine to turn and head back to Great Vulcan, the harbour, listing to one side and trailing oil into the water. Conscious that the Argentinian reinforcements had only been on the island for a short time, the decision was taken to attack immediately, in the hope of catching them before they got organised. The main force available to the British uh, for the assault on South Georgia was M Company of the 42 Commando Royal Marines, but they were on board the Tidespring and would only arrive the following day, by which time the Argentinians might present a much tougher proposition a scratch force of 75 men comprised of SAS, SBS and Royal Marines was assembled and were ferried ashore in the afternoon by helicopter. Antrim and Plymouth began to shell Gritviken in a demonstration of force, deliberately avoiding damage to the buildings, firing over 200 shells. Captain Christopher Brown, a Royal Artillery Observer, recalled, At that time it dawned on me that in giving the order to fire, I was firing the first rounds of the war. I was not allowed to engage the buildings themselves. I requested permission to engage the old whaling station, but was told to engage the area immediately in front of the enemy, rather than the enemy themselves. The scratch force of troops began to close in, setting up mortar positions while an appeal for surrender was made over the radio. In a further show of force, Antrim sailed into the harbour, threatening to fire at the Argentinians directly. White flags were seen over Gretviken at around 1700 hours as the Argentinians surrendered. Neither side had fired a shot. All that remained now was some tidying up. HMS Plymouth and Endurance sailed around the coast to Leith to force Captain Astiz and his small group of Marines to surrender. Despite his proclaimed intention to fight on, he surrendered and became a prisoner of war, being returned to Argentina a month later. Side note that Estes was a particularly nasty piece of work, uh, being very involved in the Argentinian dirty war. All in all, around 190 Argentinians were made prisoner, including the submarine crew and the scrap metal merchants who had made the initial landing. In addition to the Argentinian prisoners, Twelve scientists and two women who worked for Anglian TV were retrieved from various remote places around the island and returned to the UK. Despite its difficult start, the operation to retake the island had been a clear success. Just 22 days after the island had been taken, they were back in British hands. The unfortunate M Company of Royal Marines arrived on the island as scheduled and, in a move that disappointed these well-trained resourceful troops, were tasked with garrisoning the island, whilst operations to retake the Falklands were ongoing, leaving them as one of the few units sent to the South Atlantic who weren't to see action. The invasion and recapture of the islands of South Georgia represented a small but significant episode in the South Atlantic campaign. Strategically insignificant, The value in recapturing the island came from the benefits it gave to the British government at a time when good news was desperately needed. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was notably moved when the news came through, not least because the operation had looked like it was going to be a further disaster that might have been politically disastrous as well. And she had memorably battered away a journalist's question with the phrase just rejoice at the news and congratulate our forces and the marines. The success at South Georgia helped to shore up public opinion in the UK and bought the government time. It also showed the Argentinians that the British were serious in their intent and were willing to use force to achieve their aims. Militarily, the operation showed the perennial truth that things can and will go wrong in warfare and improvisation is always necessary. The SAS, riding high in the mythology of the special forces after their incredible storming of the Iranian embassy in 1981, were shown to be mere mortals and subject to the vicissitudes of weather, luck and equipment failure, as were their SBS counterparts. The whole operation could easily have descended into a costly farce that could have damaged the British government and bolstered the Argentinian will to resist. However, the victory was achieved, bringing the various resources, special forces, naval gunnery, helicopters, together in a hurriedly improvised plan that took advantage of the situation on the ground. And once South Georgia was back in British hands, all eyes turned to the larger problem of retaking the Falklands. Hope you've enjoyed that look at a more recent conflict. please feel free to uh, let me know if you enjoyed that or indeed if you didn't. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, please find a way to support it. These uh, podcasts don't write themselves. They uh, take quite a lot of research and quite a lot of work to go into them. So if you do enjoy them, just do something simple to support it. That would be greatly appreciated. And I'll look forward to you joining me on the next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye.